Well, it is good to be with you all uh, this evening. It is a great joy uh, to study this awesome subject of uh, the promise of the Spirit. I want to begin uh, first by entrusting our time to the Lord briefly in prayer before we dive in this evening. Let's go before the Lord. Would you bow with me, brothers, and we entrust our time to our great and our worthy God. Almighty God, merciful Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we ask now that by the power of your Spirit you would strengthen us to receive your word. We thank you, God, for what you have revealed so graciously to us. You have shown your hand at work all throughout redemptive history. You have given us page upon page in the Holy Scripture that testifies to your goodness, to your plan, to your promise, to your purposes, and to your power, God. And we thank you and praise you so much for your word. We pray, Lord, that this weekend each and every one of us would be strengthened by your Spirit to treasure the Lord Jesus Christ to the praise of your name, Father. God, we marvel that you would be so gracious to us, so committed to us, sinners though we are. Thank you, God, for each and every brother here today, wherever each brother is at, whatever trial he's facing, whatever challenge. I pray, Lord, and ask that your Spirit would strengthen and build up that brother. We ask, God, that the praise of our great high priest Jesus, your spirit, God, would do a mighty work and fill us in a powerful and special way even this weekend. That we might leave here as men who are committed to holiness, committed to honoring you with our lives, committed to obeying you with a heartfelt, sincere obedience. Oh, Father, we marvel that you have adopted us. We marvel, Lord Jesus, that you would redeem us. And we marvel, Holy Spirit, that you would sanctify us. God, be glorified here tonight. Be glorified here tomorrow. May the fellowship be sweet to praise your triune name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, brothers, this evening I want to briefly focus upon, as an introduction, a claim and a story. A claim and a story. First, the claim. In the 16th and 17th century, there was a Roman Catholic, his name, Robert Bellarmine. Some of you perhaps heard of this man. He was the Pope's personal theologian, one of the leading thinkers in the Counter-Reformation. And Robert Bellarmine said on one occasion, famously or infamously, that the most damnable of all Protestant heresies is... I wonder how you might finish that. Robert Bellamy was pushing back against some Reformation heroes like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others. And he thought they were promoting schism, promoting heresy in the church. What do you think would be amongst the most damnable of all Protestant heresies, according to Bellamy? Well, here's how we finish that. Here's the claim that Bellamy made. He said this, the most damnable of all Protestant heresies is the doctrine of assurance. The doctrine of assurance, that's the claim that is the most damnable of all Protestant heresies, according to Robert Bellman. Now the story. First, it's worth asking, is Bellarmine right? Is assurance not rooted in the Word? Is assurance something that we should actually 
lay hold of. Is it a little arrogant to say, yes, I can say I'm saved, I'm reconciled to God, I'm forgiven for all my sins? It can seem arrogant. Maybe when self-righteous or prideful, is Bellamy right with his claim? Here's the story. The year was 587 B.C. The southern kingdom of Israel was overrun by the pagan superpower of the Babylonians. Old Testament scholar and author Christopher Wright asks us to think through this imaginative scenario. So think through this with me, brothers. 587 B.C. Picture the Israelite prisoners of war arriving in the countries they passed through on this ghastly journey from fallen Jerusalem into exile, and then eventually in Babylon itself. As the Israelites passed in chains on their way to captivity, local people would ask each other this, Who are these people? And another would say, Israelites from the land of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar has captured their city, deported the survivors. Oh, oh, what's the name of their God then? Yahweh, or so I've heard. Another says, so they're Yahweh's people, but they've been expelled from Yahweh's land? Yahweh's not much of a God then, is he? No. There are much better gods, like our great king and our God, Marduk. Glory be to Marduk, who has conquered Yahweh. Marduk was one of the leading gods in the Babylonian pantheon of gods. Do you think these people in this story had assurance? That's probably the very last word, or one of the last words, that we would associate with these people. On their way to captivity, paying superpower of Babylon leading them there. Assurance, friends, is a profoundly personal matter. Perhaps you're here today wondering, has God really saved me? Has God rescued me? Am I His? As the world seeks to squeeze you into its mold, as J.P. Phillips translated Romans 12, have you given in lately to some sins, some pet sins, that make you wonder, am I really indwelt by the Spirit of God? Perhaps it's not you who struggles with that assurance, but a spouse a son, a daughter, a cousin, an uncle, or a friend. Like my Roman Catholic friend Jim, who shared with me just the other week, quote, I try to do the right thing, I hope it's enough, but man, I still mess up. Hopefully God's got me. What would you say to Jim? What do you say to that friend who's struggling with their assurance in the Lord? Well, this weekend, brothers, with the help of the Lord, we are exploring the spirit of glory. As I've studied and looked over a number of texts on the promise of the spirit, again and again, the, according to Bellamy, damnable Protestant doctrine of assurance seems to continually come up. And I actually think Bellamy is not right at all. In fact, assurance is a spirit-wrought gift. Assurance is a spirit-wrought gift whereby the Lord blesses His people with appropriate confidence, not in themselves, not in their righteousness, or personal holiness or piety, but in the promises of God. 
that the Spirit helps us take hold of, take heart in. What I want to do briefly tonight is two parts mainly. One, walk through the promise of the Spirit of God as we consider the Old Testament, a number of texts. Not every text, we don't have time to do that. And then I want to focus on one in particular in the book of Ezekiel, where we'll spend the remainder of our time. First, when you think of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, some kind of scratch their heads and think, was the Holy Spirit even active and at work in the Old Testament? If someone asks you to name one text, you might be able to think of Genesis 1-2, where we read, the earth was formless and void, darkness was over the surface of the deep, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Mention of the Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2, but beyond that, it might get a little hazy or murky. Was the Spirit of God at work? And why wasn't He at work? At least it seems as profoundly as He was in the New Testament. Well, the Spirit of God was absolutely at work, albeit in a different manner. Not in the sense that the Spirit was not doing the same things the Spirit loves to do, the praise of the glory of the triune God. But rather, this was a season where the Holy Spirit of God was at work in a different kind of way because the Messiah, the Spirit-anointed Son, had not yet come. And so before we dive into this text in Ezekiel 36, 27, permit me to walk through briefly a few texts that help us understand the work of the Spirit of God. I'm not going to touch on all of them. This will be a brief overview. A little bit after Genesis 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, we read in Genesis 6. This is post being expelled from the garden. The Lord has issued curses. Adam and Eve are outside of that place of blessing. And on their own, a few generations have passed. And the Lord says, My spirit will not strive with men forever in Genesis 6. But the length of days will be limited. Now there's debate on what that means, but again, just here for now, the fact that the Spirit of God is at work is mentioned once again in the book of Genesis. Later on, as we press through the book of Genesis, we see Joseph and Pharaoh ask someone to interpret his dreams. And Joseph is said to have this power, have this ability and gift because of the work of the Spirit. Even Pharaoh himself, as a pagan king, can see that this is not a natural, normal ability. This is a supernatural ability given by the Spirit. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, you will see that the word Spirit, Ruha, is interesting because in different contexts it can refer to wind, it can also refer to breath, as well as Spirit. And so it depends on the context in terms of how we define that word. You press forward into the book of Exodus, and what do we see? We see the Spirit on Moses, Lord's anointed one, as it were, who led the people out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And at one point, as they are wandering in the wilderness, Moses says in Numbers chapter 11, he wants to die because of how difficult these people are. Just take me, Lord. These people are complaining. These people are horrible. I want to die. If you have a Bible, go with me to Numbers 11 very quickly. I just want to read a portion of this to see the anticipation of the Spirit of God. Moses desiring greatly the Spirit of God to come. 
And indeed, we see a foreshadowing of when the Spirit of God would come. Numbers chapter 11. Right after the people complain, Moses wishes he were dead. Verse 16 of Numbers 11. So the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you, and will put the same upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you. You may not bear it yourself alone. Then you shall say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils, it becomes loathsome to you, because you have despised the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever come out of Egypt? And Moses said, The people whom I am among are six hundred thousand men on foot, yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Verse 22. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He gathered the seventy men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the Spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the seventy elders. And it happened when the Spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. But two men remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, the name of the other Medad, and the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, brothers, what we see there is one of the first foreshadowings of a leader of the people of God longing for the Spirit to descend and come, come upon not just leaders like himself, not even the 70, but all the people of God. But notice, it is in the context of their complaining. It is the context, in the context of their rebellion. Saying, we, we were better off in Egypt that the Lord then gives his prophetic powers of the Spirit to these seven. Brothers, that is called grace upon grace upon grace. Numbers chapter 11. We press through, we see the Spirit of God equipping those who are skilled in artistry, helping in the building and construction of the tabernacle. We see the Spirit come upon not only Moses, but also Joshua, who succeeds him. 
As we press forward, we also then read repeatedly in the book of Isaiah, much later, one who would come, who would be empowered by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, and bring justice, an unparalleled, unrivaled justice across the land, and a flourishing like the world has never seen. A flourishing that is reminiscent of the Spirit of God's work at the beginning in creation when God created out of nothing. And then he took that watery mass and he formed all things. We see the Spirit is at work where there is no life. We see the Spirit of God at work where there is actually rebellion amongst the people of God who do not deserve His presence at all. And as we press forward throughout the Old Testament, not only do we see this Spirit-empowered Son that is promised to come, this suffering servant, we know to be the Lord Jesus who we dwelt on last year. We also see another promise. A more full promise. Repeated in multiple passages. Some of them are familiar to you. Jeremiah 31. Joel 2. And our text this evening that we will look at. Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37. If you have your Bible, turn with me now to Ezekiel 36. The story told earlier of the people who would have been marched on their way to Babylon. This is the context. Ezekiel is about ten years or so prior prophesying and saying this is what will come because of your rebellion. You will be taken captive. And so in this prophetic word, we have here the story of what happened in history. Whereas Christopher Wright asked us to imagine that scenario of those Israelites walking and their God being mocked. Ezekiel chapter 36 helps us understand again how the Spirit was given in the context where again the people did not deserve this gracious gift of God. Hear the word of the Lord from Ezekiel 36. Understand exactly what's going on here. We're not going to read the entire passage, but I do want us to take in a significant portion of it. In Ezekiel chapter 36, we read of the rebellion of God's people. I urge you to read that tonight or over the next few days if you are able. We read of the way in which they profaned the name of the Lord. It is incredibly sobering to consider this, that the name of the Lord is profaned in five verses, five times here. Follow along there with me as we walk through this judgment oracle given by the Lord to Ezekiel, to the people. This is Ezekiel 36 and verse 16. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them. For the blood they had shed on the land, and for the idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations. They were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. And they said of them, 
These are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of His land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do that. On this passage, Ezekiel brothers, we see quite clearly again in the backdrop of rebellion. In the backdrop of a people who deserved captivity, did you notice it? When the Lord says, I have judged them according to their ways and their deeds, in verse 19. In that backdrop of rebellion, the Lord brings yet again an undeserved best blessing. The promise of the Spirit. Namely, I will put my Spirit within you. A people who lacked assurance... A people who struggled with their faith in the Lord wondered, has God forsaken us? Has God rejected us reading that? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the awe? Can you imagine the wonderment with which they stared at this and heard this prophetic word? How will the Lord do that? Look at us. We're pitiful. We're pathetic. We've turned our back on this God. And yet the Lord says, I will put my spirit within you. When we look throughout the Bible at this idea of the promised Holy Spirit, we see this idea repeated again and again in the New Testament. Galatians 3.13 speaks of the promise of the Spirit, as does Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 1. We read of the promise of the Spirit, but do we understand what it means? Do we really understand and grasp how it is connected to a proper assurance, the greatest kind of assurance that is found anywhere. This doesn't mean that there's no place for meaningful church membership. Gotta say that, no, Paul's here. It's important. <laughs> doesn't mean there's no place for examining oneself to see if there's fruit in one's life, to see if they understand the gospel. That's important. That's vital for a healthy church. But brothers, the greatest assurance from God is found in the Spirit of God and the promise of the Spirit of God. If you think all oh, that's subjective, it's not. If you stare at your life, though, and look and see, is there enough faith? Is there enough works? Am I in Christ? Have I been forgiven? Have I been reconciled to God? And you focus upon yourself, and I focus upon myself, friends, that will lead us to despair. As the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, even in the most faithful believer, you see but the small beginnings of obedience to the Holy God. Just small beginnings of obedience, even in the most faithful 
man. If you're here tonight and you are faithful to your wife and you're working diligently in your job, you're honoring God with your money and, and your time, you're serving your church, raising your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, you are putting to death what's earthly and you're walking in step with the Spirit. Praise God. Truly, praise God. It's an encouragement. May you continue to do so. But brother, when you go through that valley, when you go through that struggle with doubt, when you are being as faithful as you should, will you keep looking there for your assurance? Throughout history, that has been something that many believers have wrestled through. Where to find assurance? How can I be confident that God has accepted me, that God has forgiven me, that God knows me, that God has peace with me? The claim that I want to make in contrast to Bellarmine's comment about how assurance is the most damnable of all Protestant heresies is this. Our assurance springs out of this reality. That the triune God is more committed to your salvation than you are. The triune God of heaven and earth is more committed to your salvation than you are. And how do you know that? Well, it's about His name. He has staked the glory of His very name upon the fact that He will give the Spirit of God. Notice again in our text in Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within you, not because you deserve it and have earned it and are righteous and moral and have cleaned your act up. I will put my spirit within you. This, brothers, is grace upon grace once again. Charles Spurgeon, the Reformed Baptist pastor in England, wonderfully spoke of this. And he said this, Can any man deserve that Christ should die for him? Who would dream of such a thing? Can any man deserve that the Holy Spirit should dwell in him and work holiness in him? The greatness of the blessing lifts it high above the range of merit. And we see that if the Holy Spirit is bestowed, it must be an act of divine grace. Grace infinite in bounty, exceeding all that we could have imagined. Spurgeon goes on to say, he considers when the Spirit came upon the Son of God, the sinless, spotless Son of God, to be an awesome mystery as it is. And we glory in that mystery of the Incarnation when the Son of God, who is eternally existent, took on flesh. But then Spurgeon goes on to say, is it not more of a mystery, more profound, that that same Spirit would also dwell within sinful men? Amen. Thank you, Lord. The promise of the Spirit is not an if, and, maybe, do this. It is a guarantee. The promise of the Spirit that the Lord has sent, now that the Lord Jesus Christ has ascended in these last times and we await His return, is the greatest gift that the Lord could have ever given us. He has given us the Spirit of God Receive the words of God. Notice that all throughout Scripture you see these two things linked. The Spirit of God with the Word of God. So that the prophets who were filled with the Spirit spake by the Spirit. According to the old KJV, they spake by the Spirit. That's how they spoke. Even when all of Israel was turning their back on God, the Spirit spoke through these prophets. Fallible men. 
We're filled with the same spirit that you and I and every believer today in the new covenant is filled with. Brothers in Christ, when we think about the triune God being more committed to our salvation for his name's sake, there can be hardly any greater assurance than that. Notice again, five times in these verses, the Lord says, You profane my name, you profane my name, you profane my name, you profane my name, you profane my name. Is there a higher offense against the Holy God than this? I can remember growing up and my father, who's not here tonight, but he can verify this tomorrow if any of you uh, uh, see him. On one occasion, and there were many like this, but on one occasion I was in trouble for dishonoring my mother. And he said, son, you dishonored your mother, you must honor your mother. And I just kind of scoffed and shook my head and ignored and rolled my eyes. He said, no, 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 look at me. You dishonored your mother, you must honor your mother. It was a little bit less than that, and just shook my head. No, 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 look at me and listen. You dishonored your mother, you must honor her. The third time it was said, it was humiliating. And there was shame. What many have called the grace of shame. Can you imagine five times hearing this? You profane my name. You profane my name. But then there's this great word by the Lord. And I will sanctify my great name. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will give you a new heart. This heart that turned against me. This heart that profaned my name. This heart that has led you into this rebellion that I have given you over to. This same heart that has led you astray time and time again, I'm going to replace it with a new one. In the Old Testament we see, this is called the circumcision of the heart. The New Testament parallel is regeneration. New birth. The Spirit of God circumcises the hearts of the Old Testament saints in the same way that He regenerates the hearts of us in the New Covenant. All by grace. To the glory of our triune God. If you are here tonight, and I imagine some of you are, and you do not know, do I have peace with God? And I, I'm a professing believer, but do I really possess faith, living faith, active faith in the Lord? I want you to see this verse and recognize it's not about what you do. It's about what God declares. It's about what He has promised. I will put my spirit within you. It is about relying on what God has said, not on what you will do. This is entirely, entirely based upon the undeserved favor of a merciful God. It's the good news. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you're walking in step with the Spirit tonight, again, praise God for that. And may you continue so and press forward in that. May you ask for more of this filling. Note in Luke chapter 4 that the Lord Jesus came and He was filled with the Spirit where He went. In Luke chapter 4, the Lord Jesus said, Today in your midst, quoting from Isaiah 62, this has been fulfilled. And we see from that same passage that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to declare liberty to the captives, to bring about a work, a new work, an unprecedented work, an unrivaled work, where the Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, would come into the world, would take our penalty for our sin, for our shame, for our guilt, and would rise again. And after rising, as he did throughout his earthly ministry, promised the gift of the Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ, in his kindness and his mercy, 
told us it is more advantageous that the Spirit of God would come. It is better for you that I go and ascend to heaven and sit at the right hand of God my Father so that the Spirit will come. In Acts chapter 2, we also see this in 3 and 4, that the Spirit of God comes upon the people. They are not heroes with great faith, but they are men, ordinary men, like you and like me, who the Lord in His kindness chose and called, regenerated, and indwelt. In the Old Testament, there is a dispute on if the Old Testament saints were indwelt by the Spirit. Certainly they were circumcised in their heart, they were regenerated in that sense, but were they indwelt by the Spirit? In the Old Testament, we know clearly that the Lord dwelt with His people, the tabernacle, the temple. We know that the Spirit of God was absolutely at work, as we briefly saw in that overview of that earlier. But for our purposes, here's what we should understand about the New Covenant. Because the Lord has staked His name upon it, as the Spirit of God comes to strengthen the people of God, all the promises of God, as we read in the New Testament, are yes and amen. Every one of them. And the only way that you and I can actually draw out true assurance and have assurance in our hearts is to recognize this. That even if all the pagan gods of the nations, even if all the false gods of the world, all the demons, all the idols, everything around us looks like it is crushing the God of heaven and earth, Yahweh, just as it was, no doubt, in the minds of these Israelites as they were walking to Babylon. We can rest assured in this, brothers. Yahweh's name will not be mocked. Yahweh's name, the Lord's name, will be great among the nations. You cannot see that reality now. I may not see that reality now. But the kingdom of God is spreading as the gospel of God goes forth concerning Jesus Christ. The Spirit is indwelling every believer who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, just as God said He would do. In the New Testament we read, this glorious verse. We read, Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And the Spirit of God was upon Jesus, he said, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners. Brothers, the same God who hovered over and created all things, the same God who was with the people of God, who didn't deserve His presence in the tabernacle, in the temple, the same God who anointed the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God, is the same promised Spirit who indwells you and me and every believer today. He will strengthen you when you are weak. He will testify to the truth of God's Word when you are weary and comfort you with a promise from that word. He will remind you that you are in Christ and remind you that you have liberty in Jesus Christ. He has expanded this liberty so that you might live in freedom, not in fear. We live in the New Covenant in a very different place than when Moses came down and even fear was among Moses as he considered a tremble before the law of God. We're in a very different place now, brothers. Praise be to God. That those of us who are in Christ and indwelt by the Spirit of God can live lives to the praise and honor of God with confidence in this. 
The triune God, brothers, the triune God of heaven and earth is more committed to your salvation than you are. Let us rest in that and glory in that as we dwell on the work of the Spirit the rest of the weekend. Let's pray. Almighty God and merciful Father, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you and we praise you for being so committed to our good here on earth and forevermore. You have given us the promise of your Spirit, not because we deserve it, just as none of your people throughout history have deserved the promise and the gift of your Spirit. We thank you, God, for your work in creating and bringing life where there was none. We thank you for your work in recreation, your work, God, in regeneration and circumcising our hearts. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for how you empowered and filled the Son of God and Lord Jesus that you came and walked in step perfectly with the Spirit. And we praise you, our great and awesome triune God, that we as your children now gather. We gather tonight, we gather on Sunday with your people who are dwelt by the same Spirit to encourage and edify one another, to build one another up in the gifts that you have poured upon us. Help us, O oh God of heaven and earth, to walk in step with your Spirit, to believe truly that you are the God who has given us the Spirit so that we might obey your law from a sincere, heartfelt obedience. Not for your grace, but from your grace. We live now as men under your grace to the praise of your name and help us, God, by your Spirit's power to do so, to exhibit more Christ-like virtue, more Christ-like characteristics, even this weekend, God, you would help us and you would humble us, you would work in us and sanctify us as only you can through your word. We pray and ask this in the precious and powerful name of King Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Amen.